It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Tom Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Beyond Zero Climate Solutions Show. We're coming to you from the studios of 3CR Melbourne, syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast on the internet at bze.org.au and 3cr.org.au. My name's Michael Steindl and today I'm joined by my co-host Kay Winnigal. Hello Mike, hi listeners. And on panel, Natalie Bucknell. Hello everyone. Jeremy Spencer and his wife, Chi Lu, run a business in Melbourne designing and building sustainable homes. Since 2006, Positive Footprints has been working to build beautiful houses that are as low impact as possible and make sustainable housing mainstream in the building industry. Welcome, Jeremy. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. It's great to be here. So, Jeremy, prior to 2000, you were working as a primary school teacher and your wife in law and business. What on earth happened? <laughs> well, I found teaching a very difficult uh, thing to do, very time-consuming. So I was starting to You'll look around. You'll see builders think that's easy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's it. <laughs> Teachers are very undervalued. But I guess what happened is uh, like, like a lot of um, 20-somethings, we, me and my wife started wanting to settle down and started thinking about homes and buying homes and we started looking around. At the same time, I'd just been through a, a uni course earlier on where I'd done environmental geography. I knew about climate change uh, that was well known in academia and, and scientific literature back then. And at the same time, I'd also read a book by Michael Mobbs uh, called The Sustainable House, which got me thinking about uh, living in a low-impact way. And when we were looking around for home, found there wasn't anything that really suited uh, the way I wanted to live. Mm-hmm. How long ago was that? Oh, that was back in uh, just before 2000. Okay. Yeah. And are there many sustainable houses available now? I'd say there's quite a, quite a few, or there's the ability to get them. Um, I know of the, of the 20 to 30 that we've built, there's one that's been sold. <laughs> um, so uh, I think a lot of them at the moment uh, are being held onto by, by the people who live in them, uh, who lo- obviously love them. But more will sell as time goes on, and also there's more people with the knowledge in the industry um, now to make it happen. Because I know people that have them, they say when they live in them, they feel so good. It just is such a much better feeling inside the house than a normal house. Yeah, I'd characterise it as as warmer, lighter, um, brighter, a lot quieter because of the insulation, uh, great connection to the out side because you, you're, you're trying to pick up the, the, the winter sunlight. So, yeah, just lovely spaces to be in. No wonder they don't sell them. <laughs> so, Jeremy, you took up building and your wife took up design and that was the start of Positive Footprints? That's right. We were living in Adelaide at the time and we decided uh, we wanted to come back to Melbourne where our family and friends were. So it was a time of change. We didn't have children yet. Um, so I had previously, before I was a primary school teacher, I was a children woodwork teacher, so I, I was reasonably handy and decided I wanted to become a builder to build sustainable homes. Um, my wife was a business analyst and she decided she wanted to become a designer 
and uh, it was just the right time. We moved back to Melbourne and, and started learning those trades. So what are the biggest challenges with the business? So um, luckily in the, in the early years of the business, the house energy rating scheme had just started. So I was one of the, the first people to get involved in that. And that gave us an income as I literally rated thousands of other mm-hmm. builders' homes. <laughs> um, and that gave us an income as, as I got my degree and, and then uh, did my own um, private building to, to get qualified to build for others. To what extent are you influencing the, the building industry and, and what sort of demand have you got? Is it more than you can poke a stick at or are you still having to fight for jobs? Well, look, we're, we're really lucky in that there's not a huge amount of players in what is filled with a lot of demand. So I, I invite other people to come into this green space with me. There's a lot of designers. Well, not a lot, but there's at least a handful of really great designers who know about passive solar design and environmental sustainability more broadly but not many builders who are also in that space. Are there accreditation schemes for the builders? Yes, there are. So I actually teach at the Master Builders and we run a green living course. I'm one of the teachers there. Uh, the HIA have a similar program where they teach builders the fundamentals of passive design and also the importance of insulation and making sure it's uh, done tightly and, and how to maintain a, a clean and healthy site. So you get taught how to do that and you may even start to implement it as you're building but is there any follow-up service after that to see how the house performs once it's built or a year after it's built all we've got is client feedback every now and again have clients contact us and and they'll say you know, they'll, they'll shoot through an energy bill <laughs> for instance mm. um, i remember a, another client very early on in the in the build process he'd come to site on the weekend which he shouldn't do <laughs> but um he'd, he'd contacted me and said jeremy i'm inside the house it's after lockup i'm sitting in here it's a rainy day outside and i've, I've got i'm in a t-shirt <laughs> so uh, we get a lot of feedback that way. I, I also live in one of the homes that we build, so I get a really good understanding of um, the way that they operate and, uh, yeah, and that they work. So for someone embarking on a building project to achieve that, can you give us perhaps sort of the top five overarching considerations to have in mind getting into that? Okay. So I, what we're trying to achieve is a beautiful home that is also low impact for the environment. And the, I guess the key areas of that is trying to minimise the energy use for the house because of the carbon intensity of the way that we provide energy at the moment. So we're looking at we're looking at minimising heating and cooling loads by using the primarily the sun, in the, at least in the southern half of Australia, we're trying to heat the home. So we design in such a way to invite in the winter sun but keep out the summer sun. Also use the sun to provide power and to heat the hot water. Uh, we also look at the breezes that are available to the site. Um, go to the Bureau of Meteorology and find out where the breezes, uh, what direction they're blowing in summer. Design breeze paths through the house. So it's just a matter of opening doors and windows on either side of that breeze path to invite it through and, and flush out the, the house and cool it down. We try to lock to the mass of the earth because a house that uh, is, is on a slab or has some, some weight to it takes a while to heat up and a while to cool down so you can have a very stable temperature even if the outdoor temperature is fluctuating. 
we try to capture the rain that falls on the roof and uh, and use that throughout the house and then use it uh, again on the garden once we've used it one time on the house. Uh, so that's making the, the most of the resources that are available on the site. If you've got a reasonable yard as well, you can be producing your own food, you can be uh, having a compost heap and re- recycling your, your scraps back to the garden and um, using those services as well. So you advise on the whole block, on how to um, optimise the performance of the whole block, including the house? We certainly do. So it, it depends on the client. The client will come to us and they'll have a brief. And so in the first instance, we try to meet that brief. If they are interested in, in doing the, the garden and, and also looking at um, looking at where the materials come from and, and the impacts of those more broadly, it's all well and good to have a sustainable uh, house on your block. But if, if that house is uh, full of merbu and teak and it's leading to deforestation right now, then um, you sort of got to ask what you're trying to achieve uh, from a sustainability point of view. So yes, we, we, we try and, and include sort of the full package for those people who are interested. So that's an exciting set of vectors that you um, consider. Does that scale at all to non-residences or, or even um, mass residences such as um, units and so on? Oh, uh, definitely uh, to units and even to, uh, even to factories. Part of it is to understand just those principles of passive solar design and, mm-hmm. and how to design a house to optimise it. But um, we also use uh, software developed by the CSIRO called Accurate, and that actually thermally models it. That modelling and those principles can be really used on any building. Accurate, there's actually a separate different software for commercial buildings, but it's the same principles that are applying. And what percentage more do I have to pay to get all these lovely things? Well, nothing at all. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. Seriously. I mean, double glazing, all that stuff. Okay. Basically, we sit in the middle of the custom home market. I I guess there are people who do things cheaper and there are different people who do things more expensive. Uh, So the the way we work, we leave it really all in the client's hands. We're we're more of just an information provider. Um, And so what will happen is a client will come to us, they'll have a budget, they'll have a design brief. We, in the first instance, will design something that we think will fit their function but also perform well thermally we will then before we go any further while the design's quite fluid we will do a house energy rating on it which will produce a report saying this is how the house is performing these are the things we can do to improve it further and because we're a building company i'll put prices next to those things at the same time i'll do a costing on that design bring the clients back into the office and say okay this is how much this design costs. These are the things that you can do to improve it more. This is the benefit of each one of those improvements and this is the cost of each one of those improvements. And we'll just have a conversation around what they think makes sense and what, and what doesn't make sense. You, know, you might get a whole star improvement from, um, up from putting in better double glazing, for instance. So that might make sense. Tick. You, know, you might only get a tenth of a star for upgrading the ceiling insulation from R5 to R6. So, no, let's, let's save that money and instead put it into photovoltaics or into a nicer kitchen or, or something. That's so, great to actually show clients what it means in terms of a star value. So they can look at it in terms of the monetary value and then understand the star. You're yeah. typically doing nine star, aren't you? Uh, that's that's sort of what we're aiming for, our sweet spot, um, either eight and a half, sort of eight and a half to nine star. Just through passive design, most of our designs will start at 
seven, seven and a half star before we do the energy rating. And the energy rating just allows us to go around and we actually physically tweak each room, look at how each room is performing, and then play with the variables. Should the window be slightly bigger, the eaves slightly longer? Should it have a bit of thermal mass? Should we upgrade the installation? We can play with different ideas. And throughout that process, it's quite easy to gain that, that extra star. But to your point, I, I think it is important that it's... In the past, it was all like, well, double glazing sounds like a good idea, but, you know, I don't know. Is it worth it? Isn't it worth it? So we, we try and put some quantitative figures together for people so they can make real decisions. So on average, for per metre squared, if I want to have a sustainable house, does it mean I've got to allow a 20% premium on, on my budget for, for what I'm trying to achieve? I'll, I'll give you some figures. So to go for double glazing, and I would always suggest you do because it's very hard to charge your win- change your windows later. To go from single glazing to double glazing, you're probably looking about a $7,000 uh, extra there. To put on a water tank, you might be looking at a, another $2,000. Uh, solar hot water, you might be looking at, at 5000 And good insulation, maybe another two. But altogether, you might be looking at $20,000 extra. But the thing about those is that they all lead to a better quality of home and they all pay themselves back within 10 years or so. So it sort of definitely makes sense. Are there issues with planning permits and stuff? Do the councils get it or are they a bit wary of new things? By and large, councils get it unless they're in uh, the houses are in a heritage zone and they're after a, a mm. certain look. If you've got north to the front and you want to put on solar panels, there's uh, sometimes issues with the heritage officer in doing that. And uh, sometimes those issues are justified and sometimes it's just that your house was unlucky enough to be in the zone, but it's not really a great representation of of that type of house that they're they're after and better things could be achieved. But planning is always a, a difficult area for people to regulate. Jeremy, can you tell us what the breakdown of power usage in the house is? Okay, so Energy yeah, so the, so the average Melbourne dual fuel home using gas and and electric, as most of them are, say a, say a three bedroom home, the the average house will use around about uh, well will create around about twelve tons of carbon dioxide per year in supplying its energy use. So if you think of that. 12 tonnes as a, as a pie. About a third of that 12 tonnes is created through heating and cooling, or say a big third, a third to a half. But let's say, let's keep it easy, big third goes to heating and cooling. Small third might go to the hot water production. And then the last third of that goes to the appliances, the lights, the fridges, the computers, the TVs and things that you put in your house. Uh, so we sort of systematically go through each one of those thirds and try to minimise it down to a, um, as, as much as we can in a cost-effective manner. And to give you a little bit of a breakdown of how that, that might work, uh, if you're doing a nine-star, eight- or nine-star house, you probably knocked off three-quarters of that third for heating and cooling. If you've used solar hot water or an uh, energy-efficient heat pump, um, you've probably knocked down at least half to three-quarters of the hot water third. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you've had that conversation with clients uh, about choosing things with high stars, they can quite easily get rid of half of the energy load of, of that appliance third in their selection. We've then found if, if you put on a photovoltaic system on the roof, say three to four kilowatts, that's usually enough for most families to then break even in their energy production or their, their energy the budget. positive footprints, you actually come out with a net positive house after you built cost. 
In operational energy. terms, yes. yes. Uh, many of our homes are net positive in, in operation. That's we're, exciting. <laughs> it's Ooh. very exciting. Uh, as a company, though, we're, you know, I was always trying to prove that it's possible to produce products that, that have a positive impact on the environment overall. So we are also looking at the materials that go into homes as well and the impacts that they have more broadly, and we're still working on perfecting that part so i wouldn't say that that it's a total tick for the environment but it's definitely chalk and cheese compared to so on that topic of your building components there's a a stereotype at least if you're as old as me of of a sustainable home being a mud brick nestled away in the hill in the bushland but looking at the examples on your website they look stunningly modern and attractive how necessary is it to to go to the more old-fashioned stuff and so we've done mud brick, uh, we've used mud brick as well. I, I guess our aesthetic is a little bit more towards the modern. Uh, the principles can be applied to any any type of home. So it's really just the clientele that are coming to us and the discussions we have as to why that particular aesthetic. But there's no reason that you can't use you know, any type of building system almost to, to achieve a good outcome as long as you've got the right underlying principles. If you've just tuned in, we're talking to Jeremy Spencer from Positive Footprints about building sustainable homes. So, Jeremy, how well do the principles align with bushfire safety considerations? considerations? All the bushfire safety considerations do is, is will limit your material choices into things that don't catch on fire easily. So there's really no reason why you can't have a, a highly performing home in a bushfire area. Uh, if you do have trees around, then you might be limited on your sunlight access if it's a, it's a very wooded area. But I guess as far as bushfire goes, you're probably wanting to provide an open space around your house. So they may actually work hand in hand uh, in, in that situation. Yeah, but there's no, no inherent problem with uh, bushfire requirements. And how do your aims align with the trend for big cities towards high-density living you know, in terms of apartment mm-hmm. blocks. And- yeah, well, apartment blocks do have some benefits in that um, when you're looking at heat retention in a home, and, and at least in the southern half of Australia and Melbourne where we are, we're trying to heat our homes for most of the year. Heat loss is, is directly proportional to the amount of wall area, wall and roof area, mm-hmm. the surface of your house. And if you're in apartment blocks, well, you're actually sharing surfaces with other apartments that are presumably heating to the same extent. So you've got less external walls. So they do actually have a, a, a potential benefit mm-hmm. there in um, in being able to perform higher in that respect. I've got nothing against apartment uh, apartment living. In fact, you know, it we sort of have to because our population is such. It would be nice if everyone could live on quarter-acre blocks, but that just becomes too unwieldy from an infrastructure point of view to do that. And if you if you go if you travel if you go over to um, to Europe you'll see uh, high density in Japan you'll see high density examples people are, are getting along fine and so it's a matter of providing function and and open spaces outside so people can have a fulfilling interaction and have their own private spaces. What automation do you use in your homes? Are you using exhaust grills, electric windows, and motorized Venetians? Any of those sort of things? So if the client is interested in those, we, we will definitely use it. And, and I have in the past done some automation. Um, I had a client who lived in Antarctica. He was the electrician down there in Antarctica. So he was very au fait with automation and the importance of 
efficiency with uh, electrical automation. And so on his house and then later on my own house, I worked with him to provide windows that open and close um, uh, to, you know, when it's cooler outside but warmer inside, the, the window will open to let out the, the hot air. We have blinds that, that, that go out and retract. Mm-hmm. The, the only downside of those systems is that an, unless the person is very, the owner is very au fait with how to interact with mm-hmm. the system and potentially how to program it and how, if there's any problems, how to resolve those, um, it becomes uh, something that, that is either not used in the house or a bit of a headache for the, the builder mm-hmm. <laughs> with phone calls back to the office. Yep. So you mentioned before about the importance of material selection and um, the impact that that can have. So can you give us some examples of what might be some high-impact materials to avoid and, and their alternatives? What, what are some of the considerations? Okay, so materials is really one of my bugbears at the moment. In the first instance, while climate change is, is something that we should be trying to avoid, which is why, why we're trying to get our, our energy use low, Habitat loss and deforestation is is terrible for the planet and for the animals and other creatures who live on this planet, and that's happening right now. Uh, so we, we definitely try to avoid forest timbers where we can. Um, instead, we use plantation timbers. We use bam- a lot of mm-hmm. bamboo in our homes. If we do use forest timbers, we use uh, FSC-accredited timbers. That's mm. Forest Stewardship Council, which is a third-party accrediting system rather than the forest mm-hmm. industry uh, accrediting themselves. <laughs> Recycled timber is absolutely beautiful and usually comes with a story, so we try and feature that, and then that gives owners something to talk about mm. uh, in their homes. And then, uh, yeah, beyond that, we're, we're possibly looking at materials that come from uh, other industrial processes and uh, you know, joined together bits of wood or, or uh, MDF, which is medium-density fibreboard, which is just the, the sawdust left behind uh, and, and then re-glued for purpose. So it's, that's, that's the timber. We look at that really throughout the whole building process. For instance, in, in the slab, uh, concrete slabs. Concrete's fantastic because it's a very dense, heavyweight product. However, it's got a lot of energy that goes into creating the cement component. We take out 60% of that mm. cement, replace it with slag and fly ash, which are both waste products. Which oh, is well in done. line with the uh, BZE uh, Zero Carbon Concrete Report. Yeah. Yes, correct. We, we put in uh, 100% recycled steel into that slab. The plastic underneath is 100% recycled. The gla- We've been doing quite a few um, where we throw in recycled glass on the top of it and then polish it up. So it becomes a little bit of sort of eco-bling uh, <laughs> in the house. But uh, And once again... It provides a talking point. It looks beautiful. Um, it's working hard for the house to keep a stable temperature, and, and it it also gives the owner something to something to talk about and be proud of. So that's the impact of the materials that are actually incorporated in the house. What about the the materials used in getting that happening? Where people are now getting much more familiar with food miles, is there an equivalent of material miles in the packaging and the waste from the building process that you consider? So this is really the frontier of, of what our society has to deal with, is what to do with materials in, and treating materials as a whole cradle to cradle, not just a, a trip from a one-way trip to a hole in the ground with a few years in between where it looked like a house. So, you know, we try and specify things that are recyclable. Steel, we use steel roofs rather than tiled roofs because that's that's easily recycled. We use recycled bricks; they can be used uh, again. We and we use recycled bricks mm-hmm. within, within our homes. 
But unfortunately, a lot of the materials these days are amalgams. Um, they may have recycled content, but they're, they're usually mixed together and they'll never be unrecycled or separated again. Mm. And, yeah, it's, it's, it's a terrible thing to stand on a landfill and, and see an old house, you know, go into a hole. We have to start stopping that. On your website, you mentioned that there's a large disconnect between designers who understand passive solar design and sustainability more broadly and builders who don't care about the principles and are unfamiliar with the products and detailing necessary to achieve an as-built outcome that performs thermally as it was designed. Can you tell us a little bit more about that, what you mean by that? Yeah, I I don't think it says don't care, but uh, if if it does, I will change that because builders certainly do. Yeah, yeah, I say don't know. Yeah, builders definitely do care. Building is another very uh, difficult and time-consuming job. Uh, even though I left teaching for it, I, I found myself back into the fire as far as uh, time and effort and, and goes. But most builders are very would be interested, but either they don't have the right client or they're too time poor to necessarily learn all the skills. And they learn as many skills as they can as, as they go. And we, we are teaching builders, so the message is spreading through and is being received well and a lot of builders want to come on board, but there's still a disconnect in knowledge of how to implement sustainable systems so they perform on the ground as designed. And very quickly, your website mentions off-gassing on a number of occasions. What do you mean by that? Okay, so uh, as I said, a lot of uh, materials these days are amalgams. They're put together with binders. (laughs) So if they're internal of the building skin, a lot of those binders are not 100% stable and chemicals come out of them into the internal environment in which we're breathing in. And, um, you know, who knows what chemicals are coming out and how those chemicals are interacting in the space uh, and then you're breathing them. So we try and limit those materials that do off-gas. Okay, last question. Where can listeners find out more and educate themselves on this sort of stuff? So I invite you to look at our website, which is www.positivefootprints.com.au. There's a lot of information on there. Uh, Even if you don't want to go with us, um, you'll find uh, a lot of useful stuff for your own developments. Or you can uh, contact our office. Thanks so much for your time and a really illuminating conversation today, Jeremy. Thanks, Jeremy. Um, We've been speaking to Jeremy Spencer about building homes with a low environmental impact. The Beyond Zero show is brought to you by the climate change solutions think tank Beyond Zero Emissions and is recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne and syndicated around Australia on the community radio network. If you want to listen to this show or any of the others we've done, then go to bze.org.au and click on the podcast tab. If you enjoy the program and can donate to help keep us on the air, covering our airtime and studio costs, then please go to the BZE website and click on the donate button, particularly pertinent at the moment as we're coming up for our annual fundraising next month. Thanks very much for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week. Beyond Zero Emissions is an internationally recognised climate solutions think tank that is focused on solutions, not problems. Become part of the solution by becoming a monthly base load supporter. Go to www.bze.org.au to find out more. bze.org.au You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.